Hello, and welcome to Pod Space Nine, the last stop for trash in the Alpha Quadrant. This is not a rewatch podcast for Star Trek Deep Space Nine this week, but it is featuring two veteran viewers and one writer. My name is Justin, and I'll be your way team commander. Joining me is my science officer, Anna, with our guest, Andy, of the Nine Project. Andy, welcome to the show. Hello there. Yes, I'm, I'm picking up John's sloppy seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no. When you, when when our uh, Edge of Midnight recording came out, and you were in our when you were in our replies, like, hey, if you if you don't want to talk about, hey, uh, uh, if I you was want like, to talk four, three, like, five, nine, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I have no shame. I appreciate it because I mean, uh, despite the fact that I'm the one who sort of kind of corrals guests for our DS9 incarnation of this podcast, it's I'm I'm somebody who doesn't like to uh, like I weird like apprehension about cold calling people so if people come into my replies and ask them they want to come on yeah sure you have managed to line up some pretty great people yeah i have I, to say it, it's worked out pretty well so far despite my like rejection sensitivity uh but anyways andy welcome to the show how you doing hey you know it's, it's, it's all right uh, we're here in uh february at the time of recording which in the uk should be cold, but it's not cold, which is one of those, oh, that's nice, but it's not so cold, but also this is kind of terrifying. So, you know, existential dread, as is the, uh, the norm for living in the 2020s. But that aside, you know, it's all right. Yeah. Can't complain. <laughs> well, we know the Bell Riots are just around the corner, so. It's yeah, true, 2024, that. Bell Riots. Um, Irish Unification, that's it, yeah. supposedly. Hell yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Is, doesn't something else happen just before we get to the t- uh, to first contact? I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but I know there's something else has got to happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I, according to according to Strange New Worlds, due to, like because the Romulans keep mucking around the timeline, we just keep getting to push that back. Oh, those pesky Romulans. They're always getting places they shouldn't be, aren't they, you know? I, I I love Romulan, so I love that. Even, like even in uh, like even in Strange New Worlds, even when they shouldn't be showing up, they're causing mischief. Um, yeah, they they're one of my favorite. Like, I mean, straight from Balance of Terror, which is probably my all time favorite original series episode. Um, like on through, I just love the Romulans. No, the Romulans are great and so underused. I I, I don't think the Romulans have ever had like a really good. It's always the Vulcans and the Klingons. So those are kind of Star Trek's go-to. And it's like, no, but the Romulans yeah. are right there. They're so interesting. Do more with the Romulan stuff. Um, but yes, you know, I, I think also because of that, though, that what makes them slightly more appealing and intriguing because we've only got these little um, little breadcrumbs uh, throughout uh, Trek. As somebody who like occasionally would pick up like the Star Trek books, the, the ones that really do hammer in like Diane Duane's Rihanzu series are mm-hmm. just like they're really good and they they properly pick up what makes the Romulans so appealing of that they're properly alien at times uh, with all our guests I'll ask how did you get into Star Trek oh how did I get into Star Trek uh, we've we got to go back quite a ways quite 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 a ways uh, it, it, it's one of my earliest memories actually it's kind of my earliest introductions into science fiction I got into it through my parents uh, I have a very distinct memory at primary school, and I don't know what that translates to into the US school system. Your stuff doesn't make any sense. But, you know, yeah. we're talking like the you got you got your kindergarten number one up from that, so so that level of school. And we had mm. to build spaceships uh, for, for a course. And everyone's <laughs> building like, you know, they've got like a... And they've stuck some fins on there, and they're painting it white, it's a rocket, and that. I had to make the Enterprise. So I, I, I built uh. <laughs> 1701 refit uh, out of a couple of paper plates, um, 
a juice bottle, a paper cup, a couple of toothpaste um, boxes for the nacelles, some carbon. Oh, it, it, it was amazing. In my mind, it was a perfect representation of the studio model. Um, I spray painted it gloss white because, you know, again, that's, you know, must have been like... Uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of like a core memory for me. So, so Star Trek has always been a big part of my life. And, you know, I watched... Uh, the Next Generation, when it first came out uh, in the UK, which was about six months after it came out in the US, because reasons. Uh, and I've just been here ever since, you know, just kind of part myself down in the Star Trek uh, sphere and uh, have a, yes, just, just it's, it's a warm, fuzzy thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty similar to my, how I got into Star Trek, which is just that, like, my parents were Trekkies and did not really see any problem with, like, Star Trek. Of course, the the, like, five-year-old can watch it it's star trek it's fine um and like honestly i appreciate that because like i have such good memories of like you know like dancing around in the living room to the theme music when i was like four i i used to be terrified of the vhs box for star trek to the wrath of khan because on there you've got khan with his arms folded and he's got a skeleton hand don't know why, mm. but he has a skeleton hand. And, 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 and as a child, that used to terrify me. Um, we also had a lot of Doctor Who VHS cassettes as well, right. which are equally as terrifying. For very So, you know, it all kind of morphed into one blob in my mind. But uh, yeah, very much. I've been a fan of Star Trek since I was able to take in media and stuff. <laughs> my my joke is that I have been... I didn't, I didn't actually like knowingly watch star trek until i was like a teenager just because it was just something that didn't really come up and but the joke is in our family that my experience with star trek is pre-birth because um my dad and the man who would be my godfather uh were in my parents tiny apartment in june 1990 watching best of both worlds part one and with the with the the with the cliffhanger hits and Jordy fire and like my my dad and uncle kevin just freak out and get and my mom is like can you not i am like the baby is kicking <laughs> even 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 baby justin was very concerned for the the fate of john luke picard <laughs> i have a friend with a similar story who, who whose uh, mother apparently her waters broke while an episode of Star Trek was on, and then she decided to finish watching the episode of Star Trek before going to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, Andy, can you, what is the Wolf 359 project, or we have engaged the Borg? What is it? It, it, it is my madness. It tasked me. It tasked me, and I chased it around the moons of Nibia and around the Antares Maelstrom and so on and so forth. Um, so what is it? it? It was an attempt by myself and... and uh, Eric Muirhead and a couple of others to do an oral history of the Five Nine. Wolf Three Five Nine is, in many ways, I think, the single most important event in the history of. I don't mean the real world mm-hmm. history. I mean the history. You basically mm-hmm. have everything up until Wolf Three Five Nine and everything post Wolf Three Five Nine. Both wildly different. If you look at the Next Generation in seasons one and two, it's very much that kind of utopian. Um, uh, it's kind of that end of history thing, you know, they're at peace with everyone. Yeah. It's the golden age of exploration. They're running around in their really tight fitting spandex. And, you know, the worst thing they're going to come across uh, is, is, is some weird, you know, semi omnipotent being in the form of Q who is, you know, causing mischief or, you know, there might be some old Klingons who they have to install the virtues of, of this newfound federation. But then when you get to Wolf 359, 
all of a sudden they get their collective arses spanked by this, you know, yeah. what's really a Lovecraftian horror. The Borg are unlike anything else, at, at least the Borg in the next generation. When you get to Voyager, they become just a monster for a week. But in the next generation, yeah. the Borg are really different and they're really scary. And much like yourself, well, okay, not like yourself, because I was 12 when uh, Best of Both Worlds came out. Thanks for that. When that episode dropped, I remember watching that and you, you get to the end of the first episode and Mr. Warfire, the music builds, and I'm just like, what? What? What, what, what do you mean? It's, it's a two-parter. Hang on, this isn't something you used to get back in the day. Uh, and, and then we had to wait like six plus months for the second yeah. part. And then when we got the second part and we were, you know, this whole sense of the... Um, you know, to see the battle and to see all these starships. Because, you know, up until that point, you'd never really seen more than one or two starships on screen. And all you mm-hmm. saw were these wrecks just kind of going through the space and, and them all standing there, mouse again, put the wrecks in there. And it was just like, you know, that just, that just stayed with me. And then, you know, life happened. You know, I, I got a bit older. Uh, COVID, I was like, mm, I should probably do something during this time, you know, during this lockdown. I should, you know, maybe, maybe actually write a book I've been talking about writing for a long, long time. Uh, and I didn't. But then after COVID finished, uh, I finally said to Eric, OK, we should probably write this thing now. And, and so we did. So that, that is a very condensed version of, of what it is. <laughs> I was about that age when I when I saw Best of Both Worlds. We were watching it on like Netflix on DVD. And I remember like what like in part two, when you see the aftermath of Full 359 and just like all these ships like just wreckage and it really does there. It's an image that I think really does sell just how terrifying this thing is, especially because the way the Borg cube is designed visually, you can't see damage on it. Mm. Like there's no real mm-hmm. way to differentiate damage. So it just, it looks like always this, it looks like there's just nothing's been done. And I think it really does. It's the scariest trick once like it's the the fridge horror of you like it's terrifying when you see it on screen but when the more you think about it the more terrifying it is yeah and, and that's why i say lovecraftian you know it, it's, it's not mm-hmm. the sense of cthulhu with tentacles it is a is a, a horror that to perceive it is to terrify you and to drive you insane if, if you sit and think about what the borg represent you know the, the borg and, and and this is a line we lift straight in the, into the book you know i can't tell you what the borg is is it the ship? Is it the collective? Is it the nanite? You know, it's it's all of those, and it's none of those. You can't think mm-hmm. of it as when when the Borg send the ship. That's not the Borg sending a ship. That's just the Borg being there. The Borg being present. It's it's the equivalent of like the ship is a hand, and it's just reached out a hand to grab the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And that's what I loved about the early Borg is is just how alien and different they are. You know, they they didn't have yeah. a sense. You, you couldn't. You could no more um, kind of. Try, try to to understand and try to bargain with the Borg, then you could do with uh, an ant colony. You know, it, it's like speaking to the one individual ant. Yeah. It, it, it means nothing, but there's no way to speak to uh, to the whole thing. And that's what really kind of fascinated me about the Borg. And that's kind of what really annoyed me when, you know, it came back later on and they kept reusing the Borg and they became alien and just became, okay, they wear gimp suits and, and they're slightly... Uh, shiny and and greasy now and have yeah. green lights you know they they just lost I, I love first contact it's a it's a great kind of sci-fi action film but it really diminishes what the borg are and can be by the introduction of this idea of a queen and things like that but uh, that's not me griping about it it's just 
it it moves it moves more from like the kind of true idea of the the hive where like it is a single mind that is operating each of the elements on every level of scale to like you have individual act- actors who are subsumed and controlled in some way but like still maintain some some like sense of identity i mean the whole f- the whole thing with Locutus is i mean that's really scary and I mean, that's definitely something that stayed with yeah. me as, as a child is this idea that the borg could t- take you and, and and turn you into their thrall and and you know you're completely devoid of any kind of control and they are i mean vi- it's a violation and and it is is yeah Kind of a rawest violation you can imagine is that you you are forced then to uh, be a part of the uh, destruction of of Starfleet and everything that you hold dear. You're being puppeted, and it, it's I don't think Star Trek's ever as effectively as it did with Locutus and John Luke, and 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 I think the fact they keep going back to that well and tre- keep trying to recapture that it is kind of yeah. a testament to why it's so powerful. Yeah, like it's the idea of oh hey assimilation and just that the the enthrallment is i mean it's a popular thing it's been you know i mean it's dracula like like you know it's you know it's mm-hmm. been a thing for 100 you know 100 plus years it's a it's a really fascinating idea and i the, the scariest part is always when lacutus calls Riker number one yeah yeah i think it's most of the time the borg are impersonal but but they always have it in their back pocket that they could do something really mean and unfair. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it, it's just that, that's kind of what kind of prompted us to want the, the book and to dive into that. You know, we wanted to kind of make the ball again. You yeah. know, to kind of go back yeah. to and, and and we make a conscious effort. You know, although we do reference stuff that happens in Voyager and First Contact and things like that later on we very much keep our vision of what the Borg are to the early TNG type of Borg. So we, we, yeah. we don't reference a queen at any point. You know, we, we, we keep it very much this idea of this this alien, uh, unknowable thing that's come in, coming into their, to their realm. It, it's not an enemy you can kind of prepare for or, or devise tactics for. It's a force of nature. It's it's a storm that's coming through. It, it, it's like, you know, a typhoon is coming through the Federation or a tornado, mm. I think, is the assembly we use. But it's this idea that there's a tornado coming through. And at first, you might feel that, oh, actually, yeah, we've got all this technology. We can absolutely stop this tornado. But then yeah. the tornado arrives, and it's just like, oh, there's nothing we can do to stop this tornado. And that realization, when you think you have a huge amount of power, you can do something, and it, it suddenly laid very bare in front of you that actually there's nothing you can do. That's also kind of a terrifying prospect for you. This, this sense of helplessness, you know, in, in the face of all your technology and, 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 and all the advancements that you've got. Uh, and it's meaningless because there's nothing you can do. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the, like, the things that really stands out to me when it is not a war. It, it, it's not a it's not an oral history of a war or battle, really. It's more akin to like seeing a reaction to a natural disaster mm. um, mm-hmm. where logistics and there isn't like, oh, hey, there's a, there's, you know, a new weapon we can try or something. There is okay, going to do crisis management. And there's also we're going to throw some ships there and we're going to try doing this one thing, <laughs> which spectacularly fails right yeah i mean there's a a lot of that because again you know tng in seasons one and two of the next generation is very different to say what you see in deep space nine you know by the time you get to deep space nine they're throwing fleets of and again i I don't know you you guys are both familiar with the 
Yeah, no, we, we, we've oh, got no. Our, we, 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 our format is we have <laughs> some veteran hosts and one newbie. Our newbie okay. host is not here, so we can go wild. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I probably watched through it like five or six times. So my point is that <laughs> Fice of Angels and, and, and episodes where you've got like Operation Return going on and you have these yeah. fleets of maybe even thousands of Federation starships taking on the Cardassians of the Jem'Hadar. And, and it's just like... At one point, they talk about how one fleet suffered over 100 casualties, and it's just like, well, that sucks, but we'll be ready for next week's battle sort of thing. You've gone from losing 40 starships, just mustering 40 starships was a huge deal, to now you've thrown his way. We wanted to explore, I mean, how do you get from here to here as well? Yeah. And, and obviously, the obvious answer is it's a TV show. They moved to CGI. They could afford to do it. Fun. What's fun for us was suddenly going, okay, so so... What would happen to allow you to go from this sort of a Starfleet to that sort of a Starfleet and to try and do it in an organic way? So as little hand wavium as possible, you know, it makes sense and detracts. So when you're reading it, you're not saying you're not there going, ah, that's that's a bit, you know, that's a big reach or that seems cheesy or that would never have sitting there going like oh no actually that is what would happen that is why this you know has kind of gone through there i mean the whole thing with the romulans there's a romulan subplot in the book which i'm very proud of but when, and then you go back to watch those episodes of the romulans all of a sudden it's like no actually yeah that all makes sense it kind of connect it connected the dots too well in my mind i'm like did someone have this in mind and they just never went with it we'll never know but you know it's- <laughs> <laughs> we we talk a lot about like red like they're like in the episode we just did a recording last night and there's uh it's equilibrium the one where we find out that jadzia has a serial killer past him. oh yeah and mm-hmm. bashir says as a child i was terrified of doctors mm-hmm. and there was no way that they were planning that the the reveal yeah. of yeah. what and bashir was but the best the best retcons are in fact of continuity that makes sense yeah. and fit with what you have so the Rom- like the Romulan plot in it just makes perfect sense because of course the Romulans are in the path of the Borg. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, I apologize for spoiling this if you haven't read this, but but one of the things we have, I needed to impart knowledge into um, the the author that we as viewers know. So there's things mm-hmm. that we have to that we know because we're watching a TV show and you know we're showing things yeah. in a certain order. But there's no way that the author would necessarily know these things without a third party who was observing it. And so mm-hmm. quite early on, I knew that the Borg come from Romulan space, so I knew we wanted to have something with them. And then in the neutral zone, you have that episode where you have Tabok and uh, his second officer there investigating mm-hmm. these colonies which have gone missing. You know, he says, we're back, uh, which was interesting. Then also, yeah. though, all of a sudden, they're thinking, hmm, hmm. I, I have... Uh, this other subplot involving a, a certain Elorian scientist with a penchant for supernovas. And if you remember back to the beginning of Generations, Romulans had attacked the observatory. And, you know, why yeah. would the Romulans involve that? They never go anywhere with that in um, Generations. Now, all of a sudden, like, oh, there's, there's an interesting connection. Then you get to the 09 film with the Narada. In the comic tie-in for that, the Narada was built using Borg tech, the Romulans, had accrued over the years, and they just shoved mm-hmm. it onto this mining vessel. So I was like, okay, so the Romulans have been playing with Borg tech, and then we got to Picard, season one, and the Romulans have managed to just get hold of a Borg cube, which they're just playing with. And I'm just like, <laughs> there's so much Romulan Borg stuff going on here, which is just never explored. And instantly I was like, yeah. <laughs> oh, watching the first season of Picard, it was like, we got, I'm, I'm like, oh, wow, like, we're going to have, like, a, a whole show that's about like the Romulans and 
Then it's like, oh, that's not what this was. No, in no, fact, no. it became Mass Effect 3. <laughs> not sully Mass Effect 3 in my presence, sir. Do not I sully like Mass Effect with such Mass comparisons. Effect 3 is, I like Mass Effect 3 as a game, and I, I, I just I consider the end of Picard season one a false pretender to that throne. <laughs> I like I, I like I I am I am on team Mass Effect three was good actually. Yeah, well, yeah, me too. And, and it's just yeah. why the comparisons to Picard are a little. <laughs> yeah, no. I um, well, in the other thing, the other subplot that I really like is when you look at early Starfleet and Next Generation. It is like Starfleet is to call it. I think might be an understatement. <laughs> Uh, but it, but it is like you know it is end of history. We we've won. We've we we've won our game of Solaris. We are the we are the superpower. Nobody else is going to declare war on us. We've got some border skirmishes, but and how that uh, is exemplified through like the relationship between Starfleet and President Amitra. Oh, Amitra! Oh, she was so much fun. <laughs> she really it's a fun character, especially because it's like. Oh yeah, no. This get the Starfleet mm. that is totally unprepared for the Dominion five years later. Well, I, I, and the thing with it, it comes back to what I was saying before. You know, Star Trek in seasons one and two. I mean, you know, how many times did Picard proudly say that Starfleet is not a military? You know, he'll he'll stand mm-hmm. there and lecture to you that Starfleet is not a military, and yet it 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 has a military style structure. It fights wars. Yeah, you know, it 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 it, it is certainly part of its stream. It is defense, but. They don't put a huge amount of sway into it for, for laudable reasons. I understand those. And there's a sense that, you know, yes, you know, these galaxy-class starships, these wonders of technology, they are only there for exploration and for, you know, to, to seek out new life and new civilizations. But do the Romulans And also they have really big guns. <laughs> well, but yeah, but do the Romulans think that way? Do the Cardassians? Yeah, yeah. Do the Klingons? Yeah. Exactly. And there's definitely a lack of thinking. In, there's a naivety to Starfleet's thinking. And when you kind of explore into the backstory of the 24th century, you realize that they haven't really faced anything that would threaten their homogeny since the yeah. latter half of the last century, since Kitama, basically. You know, yeah. the Romulans retreated uh, after Tomed. Cassian War isn't really a war in a sense, it's a border conflict. Same yeah. with the Zenkefi. Yeah. You know, there's I see a lot of parallels in what we saw in, 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 in our world uh, during the 90s as well, where once the Soviet Union collapsed, Okay, America had conflicts and you know NATO in places like the Balkans and places like Iraq, but at no point was the US itself ever really threatened by anything. Yeah. 9-11 notwithstanding, but that's why Wolf 359 is very analogous to that sort of moment. It was that kind of slap in the face uh, moment yeah. where it was like, oh shit. And I actually I actually I I love the comparison of Wolf 359 to 9-11, actually, hmm. because like as horrific as 9-11 was, in some ways, it's a smaller scale than it's remembered as. And then we have Wolf 359, which is, you know, had a huge impact. And it's only 40 ships, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's 11 ships and, 40, you know, 11,000 people were killed, which, which is which is a drastic. Yeah, yeah. But I've seen, I've seen just recently in some speculations, people talking about how Starfleet could have had to 60 billion personnel. Now, I don't think that is the case. Yeah. But uh, in this world, um, uh, Dr. Mbenga talks about a million people were killed in the war, which, again, I think is it's wrong to throw numbers around yeah. that big. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, this is a fix. So here's a little side note in terms of what happened in the book. At one point, we were going to have a subplot where they tried to evacuate everyone from Earth. 
where we were going to say, okay, so the Borg are coming to, to Earth. We're going to try and evacuate as many people as we can do. And we had this whole thing where you'd have this moment where the last ship was away and the only people left were like people in penal colony, effectively a ghost town. But I sat down and started trying to work out the numbers, assuming, you know, there's oh. maybe 4 billion people on Earth. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. When you start, you, you've all seen that meme about how um, a million is like 11 days, a billion seconds is like 33 years. It's, it's, yeah. it's like we are not good at big numbers. And yeah. so yeah. All, all of a sudden it was just like, yeah, that's just, that's just not going to work. So that subplot. <laughs> yeah, I was doing like I was doing a light read through this week. And I remember like the 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 tr- the trans the uh, the CTSU, the, the trans. Yeah, oh, yes. The colonial transport I, support unit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The like they're, they're like, yeah, we, we just recently did like 30,000 people with the Shellyak crisis thing. Mm. And. And they're like, what would we do if we wanted to evacuate a planet with this many people? They're like, well, the last time this was Kid- was Kittimer, and mm. they told us that we would have 50 years, and we thought that would be doable for removing people from the planet, much, but we wouldn't really be able to put them anywhere. Mm. They're like, what do we? What could we do if we had 10 days with Earth? And he's like, pray. Pray. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, I mean, I, I love that connection of the shit thing, but that's the thing. That whole chapter was just to explain why we weren't going to evacuate Earth because yeah. I found that really interesting. Because if, this is the thing, if you dive in really into the new shit, if you start treating it as a real world with, you know, <laughs> things take time and things have costs in terms of energy and space and all that. Yeah. If you want to move people from one planet to another, what are the things you've got to start thinking about? And the thing with the Sheliak is they were humans on a, I think it's a class K planet or something like that. Class where H, people, early sets with the, that's what I remember reading. Yeah. Well, class H. but the thing is humans aren't supposed to be able to survive on those planets. So there's a mutations happen there. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden it's like, well, we have to understand what that mutation is. And then we have to find them a planet where they can go and live on. And, you know, you can't just drop them off. These things yeah. all kind of take time. And, and again, it's the logistics thing, which was just so much more fun to kind of explore that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, and we did a lot of that. It, it was one of the things, Deep Space Nine screwed me a couple of times when I was writing this. Uh, specifically, Emissary screwed <laughs> me. Because originally, I had, I had a big star map. Uh, it's like the official star map. And I worked out it takes about 20 days to go from where New Providence is to Earth. About 20 days. But then he pops up and it says, John Luke Picard was assimilated for six days. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, so so actually I have six days from when he becomes Locutus to when he's Locutus. So everything kind of got compressed yeah. down a whole yeah. lot more. <laughs> One of my sort of wishes was that DS9 had maybe done a little bit more with the aftermath of Wolf 359 because I mean obviously it's very present in the pilot mm-hmm. but in the second season there's the episode where um, Cisco has a fling with some terraformers wife's ghost hallucination <laughs> uh, which god but he mentions in it that he's like it was the it, like this is the anniversary of Wolf mm. 359 I didn't even notice it um, yeah. which is I mean, maybe something that sounds like ridiculous to Americans living in 2023 because we have brain rot considering trauma. Um, <laughs> I mean, the one I the one I wish they'd explored more was actually Jake, and and that's partly why we kind of wrote those sections in there. But you know, Jake lost his mother when he was like yeah. six or seven, and I don't think it's ever touched upon in Deep Space Nine. Again, outside of the one reference there, there's the whole thing with the mirror universe. There's no exploration about what he went through and did that. And 
on, on the one hand, I'd like to have seen it, but then given how much Voyager ends up using the Borg and it just becomes a crutch for them, I'm kind of glad they showed that restraint and it didn't just become, you know, another yeah. Borg show. Yeah, I, I, from, yeah, from what I've read in the behind-the-scenes thing, they sort of, like, when, when DS9 and Voyager sort of did their little divorce, mm-hmm. uh, they decided that, like, okay, you get the Gamma Quadrant, you get the Delta Quadrant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, I think, I think it would have been nice to see, like, maybe, like, Jake, like, more about what he felt but i mean that's if without including the borg but you know mm. i think the the interesting parts of like how starfleet recovers about wolf 359 and how it sort of reshapes and tunes up afterwards are very interesting because mm. it would have been yeah. plot thread to pick up for jake in the aftermath of um there's the episode where he's doing the where he's with bashir um doing reporting work and they end yeah. up mm-hmm. you know in the in the active war zone with the Klingons doing uh, trauma yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one that you know that would be I think the point where it'd be really interesting to dive into like you know Jake thinking you know in relationship to his childhood. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of scopes there. I mean I also think you know when he said he didn't want to go into Starfleet, I think they could have explored yeah. it a bit there as well. This yeah. sense that going to Starfleet why well, you know, there's that whole Wolf 359 thing, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of yeah. have a bit of an issue being off on spaceships for prolonged periods of time. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be interesting, yeah, if you had a thing about spaceships. Mm. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the culture on the, the culture on especially the next generation ships is so interesting. Um, like that you know, you've got the you've got the galaxy class and like, you know, it's it's. A science vessel. It's a war. It's a warship. It's a luxury cruise liner. Like you've got kids running around the halls. Like, but then also the next week, it's like, well, you know, the warp core is going to blow up in ten minutes, honey. It'll probably be fine. Uh, like, can you ima- like? I-, I always like think about like the trauma of growing up on the Enterprise. So, so one of the things we had to do with obviously is is why is Jake even at World Three Five Nine? Why are there civilians and children? present there because wolf 359 is not far from earth wolf 359 is maybe three days from earth yeah it's it's close enough that you know you don't have to you can drop your parent your kids off if if you needed to and look there is no legitimate good reason why jake was there especially knowing how good a father cisco is so the kind of workaround we had is this sense that they took a view that we either stop the borg at wolf 359 or they get to earth and get assimilated either way so you know if, if you're here at least we're together and if, if it doesn't work. So that was kind of our workaround there. I mean, the thing about the galaxy class ships is I, I personally, my, 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 my head cannon about what they are is they're mm-hmm. not actually supposed to really be in Federation space. A lot of the time they're supposed yeah. to be more generation ships. They're supposed to be really out pushing the frontier out beyond what Federation space is. And I just think that there was, there was issues with the galaxy class ships, you know, there was the Yamato, which kind of blew up. And then there was the one at all three, five, nine, which kind of blew up. And then there was, the Odyssey, which kind of blew up, and then there was the Enterprise, which kind of blew up. So I, I think as a result of that, they probably <laughs> didn't push the Galaxy classes out as far as they might have done ototherwise. Yeah. But I think that's why the Galaxy class ships have the facilities that it, it did, rather than all the other ships. It's, and that's why you don't see them on like the Sovereign class or even Voyager later on. You know, that, that's kind yeah. of specific. To it's the almost Galaxy like class. it's almost like the Galaxy class were meant to be Voyager. In Basically, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Galaxy. What? Well, J25, when the Enterprise is flung out there, which it's it's like two years, I think, from Federation space. 
And, and yeah. that's just like, yeah, that's fine. We can do that. No, that's, that's, yeah. Not a problem yeah, for us. They're, they're, like their view <laughs> we'll of see it, some cool stuff. Along. Their yeah. view of it, like, in like the 10 minutes between we got flung out here and we have, <laughs> and, and what the fuck is the board is that we can do this. It's going to suck, but it'll be all right. <laughs> I don't even think it would suck for them. I think they're much more like going like, okay, fine. Well, you know. Yeah. We're on an adventure. <laughs> yeah, probably have to yeah. work your way around Romulan space, but other than that, <laughs> one of my other like favorite little subplots in here is just the the idea of like all the uh, of all the admirals slowly cottoning on to what is going on there and real and the slow realization of how. Then I then there's the decision of what they're going to do at Wolf Three Five Nine. And giving a reason there for why they're making the stand there, which I think is, it was interesting to like, say like, this isn't just a, it's not just like, oh, hey, we've tossed all of our ships into this one system that's in the path of it. We're going to, it's a trap for the Borg. Hmm. Well, yeah, this is again, kind of trying to square that circle between how do you go from what we see in Next Generation, what we see in Deep Space Nine. So Mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine hundreds thousands of starships and and most of us old ships you know the excelsiors demoranda class ships mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's not like they've just built these ships just for the dominion war so we know that they exist there so we're trying to just figure out in our own mind why why is this the case and and we didn't want to fall back on the old enterprise trope of oh you're the entrant you know yeah yeah you know, space is big but you know especially especially by worth well three five you know it's right there yeah exactly it's it's, it's literally no, it, it, it the equivalent is it's, it's like it's down the road uh, at the corner shop. You know that, that's kind of how close it yeah. is to Earth. It's closer to Earth, in fact, than Vulcan is. So it's like really, really, really. Okay. So we're like, okay, so why are you only sending forty starships to Wolf Three Five Nine? And another question which uh, occurred to me when I was writing this is, how do you even get the Borg to stop at Wolf Three Five Nine? Because yeah. the Borg aren't going to stop. They, they they choose to. You know, the, yeah. the Borg, as I said earlier, they're a force of nature, and the force of nature will only stop whatever if it chooses to. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the reasons? Why would you do this? And and the idea of, okay, if what is the trap? And in all of kind of Star Trek canon, both Alpha and Beta quad, uh, canon, Wall 359 is basically an uninhabited system. There's nothing there. Yeah. So all of a yeah. sudden it was like, hmm. You know, if you were to blow up the star, that might stop a Borg ship. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, so if, if, if they're trying to do that, wait, there's an Elorian scientist who has a penchant for for, um, for stuff like that. And Starfleet knows about him because they rescued him on the Enterprise B. And all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the pieces started falling into place and you were kind of getting this picture. So, like, okay, so fine. So the plan, they're going to tra- lure the Borg to Wolf 359, detonate a solar bomb. Destroy the star. Hopefully, the supernova will destroy the Borg. If it doesn't work, it will damage it enough for our fleet of 40 starships can destroy it. Meanwhile, the rest of the fleet is being kind of recalled and dispersed. Because the other issue you have is Starfleet is an unwieldy beast in Next Generation. They don't yeah. have the Sixth Fleet and the Seventh Fleet and the Ninth Fleet and the Tenth Fleet. You mm-hmm. just have Starfleet. And yeah. If you're trying to coordinate all of that, it's, trying like, it's, trying, it's like trying to herd cats. So mm-hmm. what they had to do is they needed time which way we're going to get. And we also needed, you know, you know, there's the admirals arguing amongst themselves what we should do, what we shouldn't do. There's just a huge <laughs> amount of throw shit at a wall and see what sticks. And, you know, they f- the idea of setting off a, uh, a stellar bomb, we kind of draw the uh, allusions to it. It's been like setting off an atomic bomb, you know, in today. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you do this, 
this could have huge repercussions if it works. Because, you know, if a Romulan sees started playing with stellar weapons, if a Cardassian starts seeing this, that's an arms Whether yeah. or not your justifications are right yeah. or not. And so this was something else which kind of played into it. But, you know, they decided they had no other choice. So they, they, they settled up. And then we also had them send a ship, which was a little deep, uh, Babylon 5 reference. I, I don't know if you spotted that. But they sent a ship in the path of the Borg with the data about a secret lab in Wolf 359, hoping the Borg would assimilate it. And then um, uh, 359, which they ultimately did do. Yeah, there's a few Babylon 5 references in the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounded familiar. And I was like, oh, okay. I, okay. I, one of my, one of the, the part that honestly made me laugh the, because I like, I, I think it came out on 4th of July. I spent the entire, yeah. like, I spent my 4th <laughs> of July just binging it. His author's note following this interview, Dr. Saran was implicated in the destruction of the Opera Ghost of Star, as well as the Starship Enterprise D on Star Day. The results of that investigation, it's like, it is the most milkshake duct any man has ever been. <laughs> <laughs> We just felt it was important to acknowledge that, you know, oh, yeah. after this, there was like, no. <laughs> so, something you mentioned was, uh, like, and, uh, like just because the Borger, we, we were we were during equal talking about just all the silly things that Beta Cannon did with Trill. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it, like, it, because Beta Cannon authors, some of them are and like do interesting things others yeah. of them are just bad shit we're throwing everything at the ball and seeing what sticks and i was curious yeah. if any like if there were any like major like beta canon sources that like you drew from or like that were hanging in your mind as you wrote this well yeah definitely i i mean i i love the the star trek lit verse books the ones they cruelly cut down in their prime last year uh still bitter about that um but yeah, uh, like uh, you, you mentioned earlier, there were Hansu books. I pull a lot of those in my depictions of the Romulans. In fact, T-Bok's uh, flagship is, is named after... Um, it's the She-Wolf. Uh, yes, there you go. The Sussi Frey. Uh, so, and, um, you know, uh, uh, I think the Keras is another reference. There's a lot of kind of nods there. I, I mean, as a rule, is we try to stay true to Alpha Canon as much as possible. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and mm-hmm. I don't think anything in the book breaks Alpha Canon. And a lot yeah. of people are going to go, well, what about the Endeavor? The Endeavor was never at Wolf 359 in Alpha Canon. Everyone's just assumed that from Janeway's log. You know, that's just a, y'all made yeah. that assumption. It's not in Alpha Canon. But so <laughs> we we made a few choices there narratively to do this, but nothing directly breaks Alpha Canon, at least at the time of we're recording this, you know. Yeah. Who knows what happens when Discovery yeah, Season 5 hits. Exactly. Um, <laughs> As far as beta canon goes, what we would tend to do there is I tried to keep Litverse canon mostly true where I could do. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we referenced Shelby's previous ship is the same one that she had in the New Frontier books. We make allusions to the New Frontier caliber in there. And and we try to do that. But, you know, ultimately, beta canon contradicts itself. So oh, we just. Absolutely. When, when, when we had that, we would tend to. Just which one do we like better? Yeah. And if it contradicted the story what we wanted to tell, we just tell the story we wanted to tell. That was the ultimate goal. It was like everything was kind of informed by wanting to tell a compelling story. Yeah. So I mean, that's a big reason why the hood is the ship which survived Wolf 359 is, mm-hmm. in our mind, it was a much more compelling story having a ship that we knew and a captain that we'd met and who had a personal relationship with characters we knew than just a random ship, which, you know, was Janeway read a log from in that one episode. So yeah. that's kind of we kind of did that, and also things like where you know you get on Elcar's screens, you know, a certain ship it was said to be at Wolf Three Five Nine and is then present later on. Like I explained it in the 
in the uh, supplementary material if people are really interested, but it's an L cars, which was never meant to be seen on screen. You know? Every doctor is listed as someone's family members on the, on, the, on an L cars screen. So I was like, if it's an L cars, I'll take it or leave it. If, it's, if, I, if I can work with it, I'll work with it. But if not, I'm not going to yeah. tie myself in knots about it. <laughs> Set dressing, right? Like it's it's set dressing. There's yeah. a limit to how canon you can make set dressing. Yeah, basically. Like, yeah. I mean, a captain of the Enterprise was named after a local pizza place here, so I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> Have I told you that story, Anna? I, I don't think so. So, the, so uh, the captain of the Enterprise C, Rachel Garrett, is named okay. after the Garrett, which is a local a local pizza place here. Oh my god! The, the writer of Yesterday's Enterprise was a local. Wow, which I have to say, Yesterday's Enterprise is one of my favorite episodes of TNG. Yeah. I love it so much, and I, I love the design on the Enterprise C oh, so yeah. much as Master well. classes. It's a fun midway point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I do like the like the inclusion of uh, Admiral Ross, who we've yet to we've yet to mm. see in our watch through, but you know will become a big character in DS Nine. Oh yeah, but seeing him as you know sort of the pre it is pre DS nine version as like one of the dudes sort of helming up Wolf three, five, nine is interesting. And his story mm-hmm. of like, of like being basically adrift in space, having to watch Wolf three, five, nine is terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that was, Ross was kind of a late inclusion. I mean, we knew we wanted to have the, uh, uh supernova thing, but we, what we tried to do is where we had admirals and things like that, we were trying to pull ones that we'd kind of seen and touched upon there. But uh, I think it was Eric's idea where we suddenly came up with what would be really interesting is if Ross had been responsible for Wolf 359, at least in terms of what the plan is, and then everything Cisco went through, and then they have to become so close working together during the Dominion War. I just thought it added an extra layer to that relationship as well, mm-hmm. where it says neither of them speak about it. And I don't even know if Cisco necessarily knows the full extent about what's going, you know, has gone on there. But uh, yeah, with Ross, you know, he's into some shady stuff, as we know. And, and, I, and I, I like the idea that. <laughs> It it might back of his mind all the time when he's dealing with Cisco is this sense of yeah I I kind of put you and your wife in that position so the stuff happened yeah. there. Uh, but yeah, the great thing about writing Ross is if you ever want to try and find his character voice, just throw some random Latin in there at some point, and it just works, you know. <laughs> um, oh God, I I hate how well that works. Wow, you're right, though. My God. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, when, when I did the interviews with Ross, you know, at one point, I'm just, I just threw in a random Latin thing, and I literally had the author say, I don't understand what you're talking about, but it just still works because he's the pretentious sort of guy who will quote Latin. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the, other, the other thing I like is that we get a bunch of characters who, I mean, obviously weren't on screen for, like, best of both worlds, but who are characters who were either like guest characters on TNG who you sort of just assume were surprised they just weren't in the spotlight or had moved on. Like there's a there's one thing with uh, Pulaski and mm-hmm. her on Earth as as the invasion is going on, and I think that's just it's a, it's a fun little thing. But there's also like uh, there's an interview with Sonia Gomez, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just I find it really I, I find it fun just to for a little extra interview. It, feel a little bit bigger or night more tight knit what, yeah. what we wanted to do is we didn't want to just do the battle because yeah one of itself is meaningless you you have to know everything which leads up to the battle and that means you've got to start with j25 you know in mm-hmm. q who and mm-hmm. sonia gomez is in that episode uh, and, and really made a big impression and i think yeah, we actually wrote this about a week before 
she showed up in Lower Decks. So that was like a real kind of, oh, look, that's kind of cool. Nice. <laughs> but uh, so, so, yeah, we wanted to include that. And, and Pulaski as well, who was present at J25. I really liked, though, we didn't want to just interview people who were in Best of Both Worlds. Because we've already seen their stories. We've seen their perspectives, mm-hmm. you know. The only times we've done that with like Worf and Riker and, and Data is because they're the only people who were present in those moments. So they had to be there to mm-hmm. to give those particular bits there. Uh, Pulaski's a lot of fun, though, because, you know, she's talking about the Borg. I and mean, then when she talks about what she does during the Borg invasion, she goes, well, we're all screwed. And she fucks off to go and fuck uh, Riker's dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was the part that got the laugh. And it's like, oh, no, she just goes, oh. goes off to the woods. Medicinal supplements as well, if you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not the biggest Pulaski fan, but she absolutely, yeah, no. My, Pulaski. Actually, and I have to say that low-key, she was one of my favorite Star Trek doctors. Um, like, I understand why she's, like, the opposite of a fan favorite, yeah. but um, but she has a lot of good episodes, and I like, you know, I like her, I like her, like, fieriness. I mean, she's, I mean, she's basically, she, she was brought in to be like uh, McCoy. Yeah, I, she's I basically like Bones. She, 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 she is done with all of this shit. She, she has no time for any of it. Right. And yeah. you know, she spent a year on the Enterprise and then she just went, you know what, I'm just fucking done with this shit and yeah. went back to Earth. And, and uh, again, a, a, another proud little pun. I like the idea of uh, this Xenobot facility called the Flox Box, named after <laughs> Dr. Flox. Which is just... <laughs> It's just there's, there's a ton of those little kind of silly little references in there, which yeah. just make me giggle each time. When are you going through those? I'm just like, I, I, yeah, that was. <laughs> Jude does need to watch Enterprise solely for flocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in, I, I to, just to zoom back a little bit, yeah. the framing, the the also the framing device of the book, uh, of the the dedication of the the Wolf Memorial is pretty cool. How did you come up with the idea of like the memorial and? Uh, that framing device for the book. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'll give you a little secret. The, the reason the book is kind of how it is as a series of interviews is because I'd never written a book before and I didn't actually think I could do it. You know, that's, that's, that's a lot of kind of pressure to write a novel. Yeah. I feel it was a lot less pressure to write a lot of small little vignettes and character interviews and things mm-hmm. and kind of treat it like that. And I'm a big fan of World War Z. It's one of my yeah. favorite books. And I was just like, I felt I could do that. So, once I knew I was kind of doing that, I knew that I wanted a single narrative to be kind of going through the mm-hmm. but I felt it could be a bit confusing to break that up with a grounding moment as a framing device there. Because yeah. otherwise you're going all the way through. You know, we wanted to jump at some point from the stuff before um, Q Who and the Borg to, you know, when they're approaching Earth and everything. And so so how do we do that? And by having it framed around the hood being taken to the memorial station, I thought it was a good way and tells the viewer where the author's headspace is while we're reco- uh, recounting these particular bits. I mean, as far as the memorial station goes, a lot of that kind of came about because uh, in STO, Star Trek Online, the computer, I, I didn't play it, but I knew that you could visit the system game. Mm-hmm. And all they had there were the wrecks of some of the ships and like a big holographic thing. And I just felt that given how important Wolf 359 is into the history of Star Trek, I thought it, it felt like there'd be something there. They would do something. And so... You know, I, I was drawing inspiration from things like the Arizona Memorial or the, the 9-11 Ground Zero Museum. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I feel there would be something put there. You know, they would do mm-hmm. something with that space. And so 
that's kind of we came up with the backstory there. And and so the framing it with the hood being taken to the memorial station, it just gives a good reason why the author is taking the time at this point to re- you know, interviews mm-hmm. from this because the framing device is thirty years like post Wall Three Five Nine. So mm-hmm. a lot of in universe mm-hmm. time has passed. So it was a it was just a convenient way for us to tell the story in a way that was easy enough to follow. It's quite digestible. Be intimidated by a big five hundred page book. You can just sit and read, you know, a chapter and then go off and do something else. And when you come back, you don't feel like you've got to go and find your your place and read back into the chapter to kind of get where you were. You can just read a bit and it's a good one. Nice. The part that I wasn't expect, like that I didn't really think about, but that is like, I think one of my favorite parts of the book is about uh, post the Borg incursion, the mm-hmm. recovery efforts. Oh yeah. Of Wolf 359, which um, I think I've mentioned this to you in a Twitter reply, but I actually made it part of an RPG character. Oh really? Um, so I, I was, pl- so uh, Anna for, uh, reference that like post Wolf 359 there is a there's the ossuary which is a uh, basically a project to like help recover bodies and like mm-hmm. get data from the wreckage of ships um, and so I was playing in a Star Trek Adventures game and I was playing a pilot and it was like okay I, I it's like the the timelines and the way this goes up it was like I was I was making the character's history and I was like what if he spent a year being like a shuttle pilot who was like, you know, like was piloting the shuttle, and in the back there was somebody with like the little, um, the little dr- the, the little robots. I can't remember what they're called. Um, the dots. The yeah, uh, like basically being the the pilot, and in the back there was a uh, dock controller who was like helping going through the wreckage and stuff. And so that was like, oh yeah, so I like, like the way Star Trek uh, Adventures works, you can give characters like specialties. So it was like, oh yeah, small craft in like zero G environment. I, I'm always been interested in stuff immediately after events mm-hmm. like I, mm-hmm. there's, there's a series of videos where you can look, read uh, watch videos of them salvaging the ships at pearl harbor which is fascinating you know because you've all seen the pictures haven't you of, like the arizona on fire and like the actual attack yeah. mm-hmm. but, but and, and then you've seen the pictures afterwards from a memorial but it's like the next day what's going on there i mean one of my kind of I very vivid memories of in the aftermath of 9-11 watching stuff about them uh, going to ground zero and shifting through the rubble, and I always remember the sound of the fire, uh, the uh, the firefighters' uh, squawk boxes that would beep, which was just it was just a haunting thing, and that just kind of really, and there was just this sense that you know if if these ships have been in in space, if something is destroyed and it stops, it doesn't stop where it is, it keeps traveling. Yeah, and I just yeah. was starting to think about what what, what does this look like. Uh, again, Babylon 5 sort of uh, references there, thinking of the Battle of the Line and, you know, the immediate aftermath of that. Yeah. And so I, I, I thought, well, what is what is that like for, if you have to then go to those spaces and do the recovery efforts? You know, on the one hand, you've got survivors, so they have to rescue the survivors. But then you have to go and get each of those ships, bring them somewhere. You then have to go into those ships to try and find bodies, uh, which is it's never going to be pleasant. And yeah. I didn't want to be overly graphic in my depiction of it, but you know, I wanted to get across the fact that this is a traumatic experience yeah. for the people there doing that. And, and the station was, uh, it's a sense that it's dangerous work going through there in spacesuits. It's slow. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time to do it. So they basically bring a space station to the Wolf 359 system so they can bring the ships into the space station and then just go through it without the need for spacesuits and stuff you know it just makes it safer for them to do it and then afterwards they're like well we'll just leave. we don't it's the federation they don't need it for anything else and that was yeah that was kind of uh 
where that came from. But yeah, I've always just been fascinated by the day after big events, you know. So mm-hmm. that was just kind of what that came about. Oh, and the dots thing as well. I mean, I love I love the little Buen Amigo cameo we got in there as well. This yeah, idea that of, that was fun. It's like why, it's perfectly why it's stuck in my head, and it's like you know, yeah. I think it, it's one of those things that like when in Star Trek, it's like there has two hangups like that it, that I don't think it'll ever be able to get over, which are useful robots, mm-hmm. but like not yeah. not like androids or anything, but like it just doesn't use them and genetic engineering. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, like it's it's too I feel like we've gone the other direction on the genetic engineering over time well we we, we actually have one, one of the interviews with one of the uh the victims of world 359 uh, a, a a half vulcan who was assimilated who talks about the bigotry they have to face mm-hmm. who recovered where starfleet does have well starfleet the federation have a problem with racism against cybernetic and artificial yeah. beings we, we, we've seen that all the way from measure for man and it's kind of when you get into picard and the whole uh first contact day massacres and yeah. everything going on there and you know the idea of borg you know there is a touch of the leper about how they're treated this sense that you're unclean they don't want to go near them and and so we wanted to kind of explore that a little bit as well and a lot of her experiences come from the fact that yeah if if she'd have just been wounded at Wolf 359, she'd have been, you know, welcomed back in open armed and then she'd have been able to kind of continue her career and it would have been fine. Mm-hmm. But because she was assimilated and then recovered, there's a whole other layer to it where she's not able to do that. She's kind of viewed with distrust and viewed with um, uh, a sense that we don't really want you in our spaces here. And, and you know, that was just something we wanted to explore as well. I, I, I'm a big believer in the staff Trek and an federation. It is a utopian ideal. It is something to strive for. But I think it is a disservice to assume that it is always that. And, yeah. you know, one of the great episodes of Deep mm-hmm. Space Nine, uh, Paradise Lost, isn't it? Where it's, you know, Cisco talks about how the problem is paradise. You know, it is the sense mm-hmm. that it's very easy to be an angel in paradise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's yeah. just not the reality. And I like exploring that as well. It's the sense of, yeah, I think if we're, we're striving for these, for these ideals and we don't always reach them, and then we have to look to ourselves and say, okay, how do we make this? Mm-hmm. If it's a if you're living in something that you perceive to be a utopia and like your mindset this is a utopia it kind of blinds you to seeing the problems with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To the point where you even become angry at anyone who suggests it isn't a utopia. You know, right. it's, it's, it's right. it, you as an attack. So Yeah. And that's that's been that's an interesting needle that's seeing Star Trek content over, you know, over their you know, recent and less recent. I feel like that's been an interesting needle that they've tried to thread in terms of how do you how do you portray Starfleet and the Federation as something that is like flawed but still good because I feel like there's been very much a like pivot in the other direction um of like rather than saying like this is something that is good at its core but you know, has people who have you know policies and etc to like this is something that is rotten at its core that has some good people in it. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that's still a reflection of it's post Battlestar Galactica. And I love one more's Battle yeah. Galactica. But yeah. that in response to the world of two thousand and one and everything that kinda of came after that. Mm-hmm. And we have not really escaped the shadow of that. And I think season the world started making strides in that direction, but it feels like it's slipping back into this sense yeah. of yeah. 
as you say. And, and another problem Star Trek tends to have at the minute is it won't acknowledge that it does have issues internally of Starfleet because ev- everything bad that happens, you just blame it on Section 31. Yeah. And then it's not Starfleet, <laughs> it's just Section 31. And that's something we tried to address. Or I mean, the bad morals. <laughs> well, the bad morals is less bad because it yeah. is Starfleet and you have to then deal with yeah. that and they usually yeah. have their comeuppance. But when you say it's Section 31, you don't then stop and say, okay, this is an internal problem that we now have to address and look to ourselves and say, we did wrong. We need to fix this. You can say, oh, it was this other organization. It was this mm-hmm. these bad actors. It was these people. And so you never have that moment of sitting down and saying, looking yourself in the mirror and saying, what has allowed us to get to this point? You know, yeah. you can you can just dismiss it. It's not us that needs to be fixed. It was something over there. And, and that's something that's a little disappointing. And that's kind of why I'm very, look, I'm all for more Michelle Yeoh on my screen. Give me that. I want it yeah, in my it's just, I don't want a Section 31 movie. <laughs> yeah. Please, look, I'll give it a chance, but... I'd, I'd have much rather just had a Captain Giorgio on the Shenzo film, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the introduction of Section 31 in DS9 is an interesting moment. And the and I think the problem was, was that it continued to be a recurring theme in Star Trek. Um, yeah. I, th- I think, like, if you if you write off Section 31 as a rogue, a rogue element within Starfleet intelligence that gets out of hand... And has to be corralled. I think that's a lot more interesting of the plot than, like, basically like a shadow Starfleet out there, which is what Discovery did eventually. Yeah, you know, I'd be okay with it if they treat it like the Tal Shia or the Obsidian Order, and and they have mm-hmm. a real moment of, oh, you need to look at this, and you know, why are we in this utopian future having an agency like this? But because it's illicit and off the books and top secret, and no one knows about it, they never have that moment of saying, we probably. Yeah, deal with it. You know, it's it's all that very plausible deniability. So look, I, I'm I'm curious to see what they will do uh, with it in in the Section 31 film. I'll absolutely go and see it. But yeah, I could definitely do with less Section 31 in my Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> also, that's one of the reasons that I bounced off of Picard pretty hard was that I felt like Picard also went pretty pretty deep into the like no Starfleet. Is, you know, the Federation is bad actually territory. Well, you see, season one of Picard is almost. Really good. Almost. The problem with season <laughs> yeah. one of the problem with season one of Picard it, it has, is it, it has like six really good episodes. It fluffs the ending. It fluffs the ending. Hey. Yeah. Magnificently. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen endings fluff in the past, but this one, Chef's Kiss, uh, and and then season two is just a whole train wreck, and and season three is just it's nostalgia porn. I think it was like fine for like the first. I like so I was I I in fact got it. I, I write for her. An advanced review for Picard season three. And I was like, if you want nostalgia porn, this is so far like we they gave us the first five episodes or the first six episodes. So it literally cuts off our advanced review when like Troy tries to do the mind meld with Jack. And I'm like, hmm. it, and, and my, my review was basically this is a nostalgia run with the exact same plot as season one of Picard. It's just they're changelings instead of it's changelings instead of robots. Well, until it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, ex- until it yeah. wasn't, and then the board come up and, and it was like they. I'm like, did they give like they cut off us at six because once the board introduced, I was completely out. It was like I'll admit I have not managed to get past the first couple of episodes of season two. <laughs> so, so what we did is is we actually end our book with an interview with Picard at the end of season one of Picard. So that's, that's we, we don't yeah. have to deal with any of the stuff post that. We just like, yeah, end of Picard season one and we're done. <laughs> the, 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 the season three, like the first like half of season three is 
fine. It's not great, but it's like, it's fine. And then Borg woke Zoomer mind virus. <laughs> I love, I, I love uh, Todd Stashwick as, as Shaw. Cause, and again, we actually wrote, yeah. we, we, oh, sorry. so when Picard season three came out, a lot of people who had advanced screeners reached they didn't reach out to me. They started going to me, going, Andy, Andy, you're gonna you're gonna love Picard. They talk about Wall 359. And I'm just going like what? 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 You know, my book was almost finished. But like in the, the run And all of a sudden like, are we gonna retcon stuff? I didn't know what was going on. I was fucking terrified. So when when it finally aired in February, I think it was, and I sat down and I watched it. I mean in that first episode, I mean the very first thing you see in Picard season three is Beverly listening to Picard's logs from Best of Both Worlds for some reason. Uh, and then there's this whole thing about there was a computer virus that added freeze, which happened in the Borg, which Picard wouldn't have been there for. It was stupid. But okay, if that's all they're doing with Wolf 359, I'll, I'll just write around it. So I just gave Shelby like one line explaining that this was stupid and let it about. But then it became very apparent history with Picard and the Borg. And then very quick, I mean, we see in the credits as well, the USS Constance, the star date that was destroyed was Wolf 359. I'm sad enough to know that. Uh, so I knew there was something coming. And then Shaw gave his speech, and it was amazing. Todd Stashwick's performance was absolutely stunning, and we're like, "Damn, we need to, we need to incorporate that." And so Eric, pretty much for next night, after the episode, Eric sat and wrote the Shaw entry, and and he did an amazing job, just kind of capturing that voice and, and channeling into that, and just kind of expanding what was already there. And it's only a short interview, but you know, it really, that more than anything, I think, really put us on the map, as it were, because a lot of people had eyes on Wolf Three Five Nine after that episode. And we just happened to be there in the run-up to, to drop in the book. And, and I've since had the opportunity to uh, to speak to Todd Stashwick and, you know, give him a copy of the book and, you know, just say how great it was. And, you know, he, and, and he said he's read it and all that. And it, 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 was, it, it was great to have someone capture a little bit of what we were doing with our character on the big screen there. Uh, to, to, to do that, to give voice to someone who wasn't on the Enterprise, but it was at Wolf 359. And that's something I think that had been lacking in terms of, the narratives that we've seen mm-hmm. yeah. uh, throughout Star Trek. Because Cisco's the only other one who I can really think of. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, who actually talks about it. Well, you know. he talks about it in the first episode, but yeah, other than yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah, other than that... We, like, I don't... Yeah, the... It's the thing about what... We don't actually know a huge amount about it in Alpha Canon. I think... Yeah. We know... I think about 18 ships have been positively identified as being... Well, 359 out of 40. And the only reason we know one ship survived is from a line in the drumhead when Picard's on trial. Well, not Picard's on trial, mm-hmm. but when um, when, when yeah. Sati comes in and says, <laughs> she does a whole thing about 39 ships were destroyed. So at that point, did someone misspeak? And when they said 40 starships, they only meant they were sending 39? Or it's, it's become to be accepted fact that yeah. you know, a ship survived. Uh, and that all just kind of comes about. We really don't know a huge amount. Voyager skirts around it with Janeway reading some logs uh, from captains. But again, it's not directly referenced where they come from. There's also one episode, I think, Survival Instinct, where there is someone who was on the USS Excalibur and was then assimilated, which meant I had to find a whole new place to put that ship in there. But that's a whole other story. Um, (laughs) But yes, I mean, Voyager liked to just drop Wolf 359 and Borg references every other episode just to keep people's attention on the screen. (laughs) Trying to think if there's any other... Big questions that I had. Um, oh, well, one of them was there's a there's a fun little subplot there about a sword. Oh, the sword, uh, the sword of Makushu. Yes, yeah. Which I, I I thought was a fun little thing because I I like when 
Like, I like when starships are given a little, like, where they're given, like, a like a token or something that is like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, no, it's a weird tradition for this ship. And that out of me. A lot of that came about. Um, so Eric, my co-author, is uh, he's a serving U.S. Army officer, but he's also a historian in East Asian studies west point on that and he's a huge fans probably for the wrong word but you know he, he has a huge affinity with klingons and with japanese culture mm-hmm. so and obviously you know there's a huge kind of fusion of those in in actual star trek lore you know but a lot of mm-hmm. what we see in the way the klingons dress and present themselves is kind of in that post meiji era ideal of what it is to be klingons that talk of honor and everything like this Justin has described the uh, the Deep Space Nine uh, Klingons as samurai Vikings. Yeah. Basically, yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah. yeah. They're, they're yeah. I mean, like the the, the DS Nine Viking or the the DS Nine Klingons are rising from like it was a very specific moment in like American culture about yeah. how we can <laughs> yeah, and so we knew we wanted to have so, so another line in best of both worlds is hansen talks about how the klingons are going to send some ships but where are the klingon ships they didn't show up the klingons are not going to say they're going to send ships if the klingons say they're going to do a thing they're going to do a thing so where were they yeah. so we had this whole subplot in there where the klingons were about to send the ships and then juas starts stirring up shit because fucking juas yeah and so we have this interview with the klingon ambassador on earth and i star trek is very there's only two locations on Earth as far as Star Trek is concerned, San Francisco and Paris. There is nowhere else. You know, that is it. And, and so, you know, I wanted to kind of diversify that a little bit. So I had the idea that the Vulcans made a city uh, in the Middle East. Like, you know, that's where the Vulcan city is because it suits the climate and everything. And, you know, there was reason for that. And it's like, want to go. And we're like, well, Japan, obviously, is volcanic. There's a huge penchant for kind of like seafood and, and things which speak to them. And they would definitely kind of uh, be sympathetic to the to the culture there. So we had the Klingon set his um, Kyushu uh, in Nagasaki. And so we did the first interview with Medcav, uh, and it was just the first one. That was it. Uh, and then I went to Japan to do some work. And we'd had this idea about doing something with the sword, but, you know, it didn't really go anywhere. But when I when I was in Japan, I went to a shrine and, and, and visited it. And I'm just like, it, it's such a rich culture. And, and I was just like, we've got to do something with this. It, it just great. So I said to Eric, I said, let's let's do the do the idea of a sword. And the idea being that, you know, the ship was gifted a sword and the Klingons found it. And the Klingons put so much presence into their weapons. And we see that in like the Sword mm-hmm. of Kalis. You know, there's so, there's so yeah. much meaning there behind it. And I, I just thought the idea of him finding this sword on the ship, it would have meaning. But then the humans there, they, they don't care. You know, they're trying to find the survivors. They're trying to clean up the mess. You know, Captain Amazov is... You know, it, on the list of things he's worried about, that's at the bottom. So he then takes it back to Kronos and has it reforged and it presents it there. And it was just, it's a nice way to just kind of expand the Klingons a little bit more from just honor, 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 kill, kill, yeah. kill, blood wine. Uh, and also show that there are more cultures present on Earth. I mean, we try to do that a lot yeah. with the ship names. You know, I have ships like the Ibn Sina and uh, the Bungarihi. There's the ship names which aren't Western focused mm-hmm. in there because it's this idea that. Yeah, okay, you've got your Enterprise, you've got your Yorktowns, you've got your War Spikes, but there's so many other cultures on Earth and so many other cultures in the Federation. Yeah. I wanted to show yeah. those off as well. And so that was just kind of a challenge. So basically any, not everyone, but almost every ship name I came up with in the book is not an American or British ship name sort of thing. It comes from another culture, just so we could diversify it a little bit. Very cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like I like I it's like it's the idea. I, I liked the idea of like that the that the Klingons like okay if we can't save we if we can't save we'll save history, and I think that's like that that in particular like stood out to me as like yeah that seems really Klingon and that's like it's a it's an interesting thing I hadn't considered before, but it makes total sense with them of like we can at least save a history of the ship in a way. I mean, we put this whole Klingon memorial mm-hmm. on the station. Um, because I thought th- this would probably Klingons are fascinating in Star Trek in in that sense that they they missed the golden this was the greatest battle of a generation you know this, this was the defining moment and they missed it what does that do to the psyche of a people I mean that will it, yeah. it was a moment for them to really kind of to turn up to to face this mighty enemy. Honor galore was was to be had here to to face this enemy and either and to stand shoulder to shoulder with your allies and they, and they missed it they turn up and the Borg had already gone mm-hmm. and and they missed it because of political infighting and if you look at what the Klingons are like in season three of TNG mm-hmm. uh, you know when Kim Peck dies and and the whole thing with redemption perceiver yeah that makes sense if if they'd have just done that they were they are declining people and we get this line later on from Esri when she says you know the Klingons have had their day you know. Uh, I'm not as enamored with them as Curzon or Jazir was. And you're seeing aspects of yeah. that there in, in that sense. Talk about wanting to be present and to do it. We had the missing fighting and it had a huge thing. And so what Martok had did later on is he presented this uh, uh, sculpture, this, this eternal flame, which was by two Klingon warriors. And they stand there to light the way for Stovall Core for the souls. And, you know, one of the things they do when they uh, arrive there is they have to throw their family crests and any symbols of honor they have onto the fire to show that they were without honor on that day. And they stand there until their tour is over and then they um, they can reclaim it afterwards. And and that was just a fun little thing to throw in there, you know, just to show that although the Federation were the ones which faced the Borg and, you know, went down, it, it affected the entire quadrant. And that's why we've got interviews yeah. with the Cardassians in there. We've got Brunt giving an interview about how it impacted the FCA, which was just hilarious as well. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a funny <laughs> one. <laughs> You know, oh, he, oh, incredible. Especially because it's like a post-series Brunt who's like now just working oh, yeah. a desk job. <laughs> oh, he, he's basically the PA for, for, for Grand Nagus Nog, but uh, for Rom. And he basically says like, yeah, the Ferengi Alliance was, was destroyed in 359 because it set in motion the things which led to our downfall. I mean, yeah, the, the discussion about like the Klingons as a as a species of decline. I'm I, inspired by um, both Edge of Midnight and Wolf 359. I, I'm working on a project of my own, which is a lot more fiction than like than historical. My my joke is is what if Harry Turtle the wrote Star Trek? Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, which is basically about Martok having a heart attack and the entire Empire having a shit fit afterwards. Oh. Um, <laughs> of like all these things because all these things of like the Klingons like they're so close to being a species that is like ready to have a radical reinvention of themselves. But I don't think any, I, I, I don't think a TV series would ever do it. Well, yeah. they tried it with discovery and, uh, that was met with mixed results. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the problem with discovery is also that just you're backfilling in and not mm. going forward, which I understand yeah. why you don't do that, but it, it's, it's like back, backfilling with more crises, right. <laughs> Too. <laughs> But the thing with uh, what Discovery did with the Klingons is it was a new take yeah. and it was trying to do yeah. something different and interesting. 
but every time you go for a prequel show, you know, you're, you're going to butt up against, you know where we're going. Yeah. And I mean, that, I've enjoyed Strange New Worlds, but I really think Strange New Worlds should have been a single season. And it should have, I mean, the, the purpose of Strange New Worlds in my mind should have been a story about it's Pike coming to terms with his destiny and accept it. And so when you get to the final episode, it's like, oh, okay, I understand now this is my destiny. I have to go with it. That's my story. And that's what I feel it should have been. I, I the more the more I've watched of it and the more I think on it, the more it sounds like I love this crew and I love this cast mm. and I want to see more of them. It really does feel like Pike's story is done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do th- one other thing that I wanted to talk about is I I enjoy especially in like fiction when uh, specifically president uh, 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 address because I love nothing more in fiction than characters doing something that they think is going to be a grand gesture and that like is going to be heroic moment and falling fucking flat on their face. (laughs) Can I give a a, a huge shout out to Eric here? Because look, people may think it's difficult to write a good speech and it is. But you know what's even harder? Writing a bad Writing speech. a terrible speech. <laughs> so deliberately. It's, it's like, look, I, I mean, look, I couldn't have written this project on my own. And, and, and yeah. the two biggest things Eric brought to the project were, firstly, the, the speech writing skills there. And I'm not saying he's a bad speech writer. He's very good, but you think you could do that. But also, the Admiral meetings. The reason the Admiral so meetings funny. feel so real so funny. meaning those meetings. <laughs> Eric has list, sat in those sort of meetings where you have high-end officers shit-talking each other and just griping about you know, stuff and not going on, which uh, <laughs> it, it really does add to the, the sense of realism in, in, in that sense of making it feel like a real organization and not just, you know, a TV show where bad will of a week will show up next Tuesday and ruin everything for everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 and I like the, the, in the sort of the aftermath chapter, the, the card, uh, Gulbasad, who is the, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Alema's other Cardassian role talking oh, about yeah. the, the the repercussions of Wolf 359 and they realized just like, wait, we, we didn't realize anything about what was going on until afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, we originally were planning to have, uh, again, kind of a behind the scenes moment. Uh, we wanted to have, uh, it was in the aftermath of the Dominion War where they would go to Cardassia and they'd find like the Obsidian Order's like vaults and they'd go through there and they'd find all these records about what the Cardassians fought about the Federation and everything going on there. But it was just too unwieldy and it was like a whole lot of setup to just get this point. And I was like, we, we need an interview with someone. And the first one was, well, Garrick is the obvious one because we all love Garrick. But yeah. Garrick wouldn't know yeah. what we wanted to know because he was already on the outside at this time. I mean, he was on Deep Space Nine, but you know what I mean? So, and then it was just a sense of, well, we'd already had Mark Alamo as T-Bock. And I was like, it'd be great to to basically have good to cut, have, have a talk there. <laughs> And so we had him speak about it. And I was actually, it was just an accident how the Cardassian situation about the book, because it wasn't our intention when we set off to write it that way. But then when you go back and look at Next Generation and you see all the stuff that's going on in the background and what leads into Deep Space Nine, it's like, no, actually, this is like a big thread that's been bubbling along alongside this stuff. And it all, again, it's one of those crazy moments where the pieces just all fit together. And it's like, oh, this all makes sense here. And this sense that the Federation really wanted peace with the Cardassians because, you know, peace is good. Absolutely, it's good. But then Amitra, it's made it one of the core aims of her administration is to have peace with the Cardassians. And the Cardassians are losing the war. Like, they can't afford it. So they're yeah. desperate. 
And they're going like, well, we will do anything to end this, you know, do this. And then Wolf 359 happens and they suddenly you have the hardliners, you have people like Descartes say, well, you see, if we'd have just held on longer, we'd have been in a much better position there. And that allows them. Mm-hmm. To, and, and we've seen that in our world today over here with Boris Johnson, over there with Trump. You get these people who will suddenly, strong men, who take advantage of what's happening in the real world and start putting themselves in these positions. And the next thing you know, you're in an alliance with a dominion and <laughs> They're turning the defense grid on their planet, you know? <laughs> yep. So I, I think the last thing I want to talk about is how um, the as how Wolf 359 has now become part of Star Trek Online in its own way. I mean, we're, 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 we're semi-unofficially yeah, official sort now, of, sort of thing. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite the accomplishment, honestly. Yeah. That's really cool. No, it's, it's fantastically cool. And, and again, a, a, a huge thank you to everyone over at Cryptic, especially Thomas Rowe. Uh, I mean... I first sent a draft of this to Thomas. Oh, it must have been December 22, I think it was. You know, it wasn't quite finished, but, you know, he left me on red, which is fair enough. You know, a lot of people message him, but he's friends with John. And John, who was already working with us and kind of writing the um, appendices and stuff, was like, going, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. And then all of a sudden, completely out of the blue, I suddenly got a message from Thomas saying, I've read it. I love it. I need more. <laughs> and we just started talking. And, and, Thomas was great because he could answer a lot of kind of, there's a lot of questions I had in terms of starships and how they work. And we share a lot of opinions. The controversial opinion that the Akira class starship might possibly have been in service prior to first contact. Well, we both were of the opinion that the Akira class was probably developed to fight the Cardassians, but then it was stopped because of the peace talks. And it was only later on that they started using it again. Yeah. I'm not going to relitigate all of that. People have very, very strong opinions oh about gosh, which fictional I, starships I, should have been present. I, I've, like, I've, seen the, <laughs> I've seen the replies, and it was, mm. I was like, I, I feel bad for the people who have to read those. <laughs> oh, and that's a great thing I don't. Uh, that's the other thing as well. Here's the secret. I don't really care that's, that's, what ships were at Wolf 359, because that's not the point of the book. Yeah, no, it's not the point. Coming up with a list of names. <laughs> with, oh, that's a cool ship name, and you know, that's yeah. kind of a cool thing. But I tell you what it does do, it keeps people engaged, it keeps people talking. Yeah. But to get to your point about Star Trek Online, uh, I don't know what point they knew they were going to do Wolf 359 for their 14th anniversary, but um, he basically, we were speaking at Star Trek Las Vegas and he reached out to me shortly afterwards and he said, would I be okay if they used it as the basis of theirs one? And and we're an unofficial fan project, you know, we're in no way official. Paramount, we're very clear on that fact, to the point where lawyers were involved. But we are very much an unofficial project. Yeah. And uh, I was like, look, for me, it's just an honor that you'd even want to use it. By all means, I gave them carte blanche. You could use whatever we wanted to use and to do. And so what they did is they took the idea of a memorial station. They put their own spin on it, mm. quite literally. But they have their own version of the ossuary in the Wolf 359 system now. So you can fly to Wolf 359 in-game and visit the wrecked ships at the memorial mm. station. And then they done a, a, a TFO, Task Force Operation, where you can fight Wolf 359. And the narrative is more or less based off of how we present it in the book. They don't have everything. Some of the ships that we reference aren't in the game, so they don't exist. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, um, we have Bill Krause's Endurance is one of the ships that we use. That's not in the game, so they swap that around. And also, mm-hmm. they didn't set up the Supernova with the, the Runabout and Ross in there, but mm-hmm. you do have the little Oberth-class Bonstel is the first ship which detonates and kind of traps the Borg in place. So all the ship names are kind of the same. Most of the ship classes are similar. So as I said... We are semi-unofficially, officially beta canon-ish yeah. on a computer <laughs> game. 
where everyone can make up their own ships anyway. It, <laughs> it was just a great. It was great fun to see people like, engaging with it, which was kind of cool. Uh, and honestly, we were just honoured that they thought that our take on it was good enough to, to to use and to adapt. I mean, what's really wild is within the space of like a few months, we did the book for three five nine. JTVFX released his amazing CG animation on YouTube, which you should definitely check out. It's probably the best. It's the best adaptation of what it would have looked like if they could have shown it in 1991. Like he he managed to get, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming he. I apologise for the case, but they managed to get the um, the effects in such a way that it feels like you're watching an episode of Next Generation. And then Picard came along with the whole Shaw thing on 359. So all of a sudden, all of the 359 content was just hitting at once. Mm-hmm. So that was just wild as well. <laughs> I think sometimes there's just something in the air where people all get on the mm-hmm. same vibe. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, you've got Babylon 5 and Deep Space 9. I mean, yeah. how often does that happen? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh. We, we, we've been joking for year, for for now years that um, the show is just waiting for them to start the, doing the reboot. And then we can officially become a Babylon 5 podcast again. Um, yes. But, <laughs> but the universe keeps uh, conspiring. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, bloody Warner Brothers, eh? Yeah, they got to keep merging uh, and strikes and then another merger, put everything on hold. It's uh, so despite despite our protestations, we became a Star Trek podcast. (laughs) You got enough to keep you busy for the time being, at least. Any excuse to rewatch Deep Space Nine. I I think we've we've sort of like we're only doing DS9 because Jude, our other co-host, hasn't watched it yet. Um, Yeah. That's kind of the, the bit is that we typically have two people who are, you know, veteran fans of the the piece of media and then one who's never seen it before. So gotcha, for yeah. Babylon 5, um, Jude and I had previously and Justin was new to it. Um, in between that and uh, DS9, we did Person of Interest where I hadn't watched it. And now Jude is the one who gets to be <laughs> the, uh, the, Which- the person who we, you know... <laughs> try to not you know try to like keep our facial expressions you know oh, level. Yeah. oh gosh it's... be neutral yeah so Andy, where uh do you wish for people to find you on the internet and if so where oh no no don't don't find me don't, don't you dare perceive me i hate that no i mean you could find the book on Twitter um, and most social media sites at Wolf359 Project. Uh, you can also find uh, myself, John, Hi, and uh, a plethora of other talented writers and artists at the Tranquility Press Discord and Twitter accounts and so forth, where you know we, we do kind of like uh, fan writing projects and world building. Uh, we actually have a little fun side project we're doing at the minute. We're doing the Jane's Fighting Ships of Wolf359, or Jace's Fighting Ships for... Um, for legally distinct reasons, but we're inviting the community to, because again, it's 40 starships with World 359, and then those other ships in the story. And each of those ships have their own stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Each of those ships has a, has a history. And we're basically saying to you, if you want to write 500-word little story about one of those ships that was at World 359, submit it, and, you know, we'll take the best ones, and we're going to put it together into a fun little book that we'll kind of put out. So, so that's a little project we're working on at the minute, uh, and again, all those details. If you go to our Twitter, uh, that's probably the best place to find that stuff. If you don't want to be on the Hell site, it's on Blue Sky mm. Discord. I'll send you a link. The social media, cool stuff on there and stuff. And yeah, the book. I mean, you can download it for free from the uh, Wolf359Project.com. Um, it works great on an iPad. It's like reading it on a pad, as it was intended. Um, <laughs> and the other thing that's currently in progress is we've got an audio adaptation we're working at, uh, working mm-hmm. on. 
Uh, I just recently, uh, so Jesse Earl from uh, Jesse Gender, the YouTube channel, uh, has recorded the uh, the opening sections for me because uh, she is playing the part of the author. And let me tell you, it's fucking amazing. Oh yeah, I cannot wait awesome. for that to be done because just you know, I I love I love an audio book. I love an audio drama. Oh absolutely. And uh, it's I'm very excited for that to come to pass. So so yeah, those are the uh, the ways you can find those. I mean, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Andy Free E. But uh, I don't post there much. I mostly just post through the 359 account because more people follow me there. So I can spam with Star Trek shit. (laughs) (laughs) So listeners, I don't know when this is going to come out. So I don't know what our next episode is going to be. Uh, But until next time, just keep circling. Keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Yeah. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.